electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour, the Fang Fumble, what the Apple, Amazon, and Netflix underperformance means to the markets and your money, and whether stocks can really keep climbing if those names keep struggling. We debate that with our investment committee today. Joining me for the hour, Jenny Harrington, the CEO and portfolio manager, Gilman Hill Asset Management, Amy Raskin, the chief investment officer of Chevy Chase Trust, Joe Terranova, Pete and Jerry, and rounding out our four today. Let's go to the wall. Stocks trying to reverse that two-day losing streak. We're green across the board. Yields holding in on the 10-year, 157. Obviously, a lot of focus today on the tech trade. That after Netflix earnings, that stock slide, Pete. Apple is flat on the year. Amazon's barely up on the year. Netflix is today's biggest loser in the S&P, the Nasdaq 100. It's negative on the year. How much of a problem is that if those big name tech stocks continue to struggle? Yeah, I don't know that that's a problem at all, Scott. I mean, quite frankly, I think it's actually healthy for the markets that it's not just the four or five names that we bring up all the time. And it seems like have been the leadership for so long. I think it's great that we're seeing some form of rotation that's actually sticking. I mean, just take a look at, for instance, the financials how well they've been trading. You go all the way back to November, but year to date, they're doing extremely well. You look at the material space. You also look over at some of the the other names in the energy space, particularly those beta names in the energy space, but even the big names. And I think it's very, very healthy that we're seeing a market that's not so dependent. It doesn't mean that we don't want these names to participate. I think we do. Many of us own a lot of these various stocks, but I think the reality is it's great to see the markets don't have to depend on those four, five, six names that we bring up all the time. And there is much more diversity out there. Even the consumer discretionary, you look at a lot of different areas in the marketplace that we have seen that performance that's being made up. And let's not deny the fact that just a few days ago, again, we were setting record highs, right? So it does say a lot about what's going on, I think, underneath. And it's not just a fang trade anymore. Let me ask you this, though, Pete. What happens if the other areas of the market that you just cited are overextended Mm -hmm. and these aren't performing at, at the same time. Isn't that a problem? That would be a problem. I don't know that I would say that the financials by any uh, measure are necessarily overextended. I think there's a lot in the energy space that's not overextended, especially when you consider the fact of where was crude. Crude was 38 bucks back in November, and now here we are close to, we were 63 just a couple days ago. We're still somewhere in the above 60. So, you know, I think there is support out there, Scott, for a lot of what these moves have been in a lot of these different areas, different sectors. And, you know, we talk about the semiconductors all the time. Many of those names, still traded a very fair value and and but there are many that are obviously that probably are extended so i think there's within uh some of these sectors we have individual names that certainly reflect what you're talking about which is hey some of these are extended they're overpriced i specifically would say that the high multiple names that had such a great run 
uh, have certainly been an area that always makes me scratch my head and makes me a little bit scared because of the fact that they've they've run with absolutely nothing that can really truly support it other than the potential into the future. But outside of that, I think that there's a lot of different areas in the marketplace right now that still feel very comfortable for me to buy. Let's be real, though, Jenny. I mean, it certainly makes it harder for the Nasdaq to do well if Apple and Amazon and Netflix can't pull their own weight. I mean, these were the ones that were driving the train. Now they're, you know, at risk of being the caboose. Don't go anywhere, camera. I'm, I'm here. There we go. We're back. Jenny. <laughs> And I think how wonderful is that? And I've been arguing for a long time that we don't need them to continue to be, to be the driver of the train. It's okay if they take a, a turn being the caboose. And for, I think, the way Pete phrased it is really well. We're broadening the base and that's creating a healthier market. I was, I was writing when he was um, speaking that that diversity of leadership builds, for, builds a stronger, more resilient market. That's what's happening now. And when we talk about overvaluation. One of the things Amy and I were talking about before the call is how many pockets and little areas in the market there are that aren't overvalued. You can look at many of the banks, and Pete was mentioning this too, and they're still trading at 10 times earnings, 12 times earnings, 8 times earnings. Um, there's plenty of energy stocks out there that are trading at a fraction of the market multiple. So as those grow from 10 times earnings to 12 times to 13 times, you're just building a stronger market that's good for everybody. It's okay if Fang takes a break and is the caboose. They have done their work over the past five years. Give them a break. Let them take a breather. Let them grow into those multiples. Well, that's healthy and good for everybody. Uh, unless, Joe, you know, you're wondering where the next leg of the rally is going to come from, right? I mean, like I, like I said before, the recovery story at this point is obviously well known. Uh, uh, and I don't know how much of it is already in the market, but you've got to believe a, a good portion of that is already in the market. So maybe those gains are a little muted going forward. Like I said before, if you have fang gains that are muted going forward, do you not have a problem? At some point, Apple and Amazon need to start performing, don't they? Well, we're, you're making the assumption that looking forward, Microsoft, Alphabet, um, Apple, they are going to begin to underperform because actually they're outperforming over the last six weeks. They're doubling the S&P 500. And it's about that rotation that Pete is identifying. Earlier in the year, we were gearing towards high cyclical, high beta, uh, low quality type of equity names. And that's where the underperformance was occurring for the fangs. Now we're back to focusing on quality. So I think the question becomes, Looking forward, it goes back to Treasury, Scott, and it goes back to are you able to continue to have this rotation within the equity market? If you're not, if you begin to see Treasury yields decline even further, money is going to come out of equities, go back into fixed income. And I think it's at that point that you're going to see this consolidation or correction phase for the S&P 500 that over the last week or so, people are beginning okay. to talk about. So that, that's not really, I mean, it's a good point you make, and it certainly, you know, feels like it matches what Scott Minard was saying on the network earlier this morning on worldwide exchange. You, you know, you get some near-term chop, you're going to get more of a bid into bonds as a result because you'll have some of that money coming out of equities. Amy, how do you see it? Mm -hmm. what, what should we make of the fact that those three FANG stocks have done nothing for, you know, since the beginning of the year? I mean, they're either flat over the last three months or slightly negative? Well, I, I don't think it's surprising. Towards the end of last year, I was talking about trimming the fangs, and we did that um, 
So I think during the pandemic, when there was massive liquidity and no story that people wanted to, you know, felt comfortable with, you got money rushing into the banks. And now you've gotten some of that coming out and diversifying and going into other places in the market. So I think that's completely normal and to be expected. Um, I like the valuations better down here, you know, relative um, than I did before. But um, with some of the things, we don't own all of them in general, we're underweight. But um, I, I think it's to be expected. I think the market's searching for a leadership right now. I don't think it's clear where it is. There's a tug of war between the liquidity and people looking for stories and something to that they feel comfortable that they're going to earn a return versus a very, very expensive market in general. Certainly there are pockets here and there um, that that are attractive, but in general, the market's expensive. And in general, right now, the market S&P is 50% growth. So you're going to need growth, um, maybe not the FANG specifically, but growth overall if you want the overall market to go up. Right. Let's talk about Netflix more specifically. I did mention it is one of the biggest losers today out of the 100 and also the S&P. Uh, stock's down about 7%, maybe a little bit uh, less than that at this point. It's certainly recovered off the lows. The subs were a problem. The, the pull forward, as you know, was rather significant because of the pandemic. Jenny, you say this stock was priced for, quote, delusion. Tell me what you mean. When you have a company that, re that reports as unbelievable numbers as they did, right, 24% earnings growth, they added 3 million subscribers, and it's down 7% on those earnings, the stock before that wasn't priced to perfection. It was priced to delusion, delusional expectations for that level of growth to continue to, to go into the future. One of the things that I've been thinking about a lot lately is how there needs to be a concert between the valuation of a stock and the story of a stock to make a great investment. And what we focused on a lot, particularly over the last year, is the stories. I always focus on the valuation. Maybe I need to incorporate the stories more, but you need to marry that valuation and that story to actually have a great investment. So let's not argue about what a wonderful story Netflix is. We all love watching it. I loved The Queen's Gambit. That was mm -hmm. terrific. But the valuation was totally delusional. It was as if sunshine and rainbows were going to continue for the rest of eternity. And they're not at that level. There's competition here. And we're going to see that with all of the big super caps talk tech stocks as they start to report. There's competition. When you get that big a piece of the pie, everybody wants some. And they actually said on the earnings call, like, oh no, we don't think this was from competition. But there is a lot out there. And I don't think it's winner takes all. I think there's plenty of room for Disney and Hulu and Apple TV. There's room for all those guys. But there is competition and that's meaningful. And when there is competition, it, you know, there needs to be a correct valuation. And that's what they did not have going into this earnings call. Okay, so, so I, it was, yeah. So I wrote, that it was gonna go I, I wrote this down. Yeah. So I, I wrote that down. What, what you said, yeah. Netflix was quote priced for a delusional level of growth, and I wrote it down hmm. because I'm guessing that our guest right now is going to disagree with you. It is one of our own, uh, Tiffany McGee. She bought more Netflix before earnings, and now she says she is buying more on the drop. She is on the phone with us. Tiff, are you there? Yes, sir. Hi, how are you guys? Man, Jenny just hated all over, all over Netflix. What, what, what's your counter to that? Because clearly you... Only the valuation. No, Love the story. Yeah, but only the valuation. But I mean, you said it was priced for a delusional level of growth, right? That's hating, that's hating on where the stock price is right now and the valuation. So, Tiffany, what's your, what's your counter to that? Because clearly you disagree with what Jenny just said. Absolutely. And, and I'm just going to remind everybody that somebody else hated on Netflix, Blockbuster, right? There's a whole story behind that. Um, you know, first, I think that we, we really need to remember, you know, this, this is a company that started in, in 1997. 
And when they started, you know, really thinking about their evolution from DVD by mail to streaming, right? And they've really powered through with this evolution um, from U.S. only to global, from license to, to original content. So that's, that's how I'm thinking about this. Um, but in terms of competition, Jenny mentioned, um, you know, I, I, I really disagree. So their biggest competition is with linear TV, right? Um, and they still have 10% um, less, actually less than 10% of, of the, of the uh, linear TV viewer share, right? So their second biggest uh, competition is YouTube, right? And Disney really pales in comparison. So I'm looking at the whole story, right? So they've been expanding in their international in their international markets, really focusing on producing that original content in those markets, not sitting in the U.S. and producing what we think are good for those markets. Um, and they're able to spend less on content. There is a direct line between the amount of content, original content that, that Netflix makes, and their revenue. Um, and of course, they had this. Of course, they had this pull forward. Um, with with us subscribers, but they also had a shutdown in production. So I expect this, right? So you know, and they also said in their earnings call, it's really hard to forecast in a traditional quarter, much less a really crazy quarter, uh, um, five quarters um, like we've had uh, in, in, in the past year. So you know, this is right in line, really, with what I was thinking. And I'm not looking at this from you know a Q1 perspective. I'm looking at this in terms of uh, Netflix. Uh, going forward, um, there is really, in my mind, you know, I, we sit and talk about Disney Plus being being competition. Um, I really don't see that as competition, right? This is Netflix's sole business. They just did this deal with SUNY that gives them access to all this, uh, you know, um, sorry, uh, uh, Sony um, IP, um, and they're really focused on continuing their um, their production right. and original content right. across across the world. Well, when yeah. we we had this big debate yesterday, you know, you and me um, about what to expect going into the number. You you were not negative going into to the print, like you said. You say now you were you were expecting this sort of thing, but you weren't looking for as big of a sub miss as as they they had. There, there's no way, given what you said to us yesterday, I, I don't imagine that you were looking for as much of a pull forward because part of the conversation that we had yesterday was on what the impact of the post pandemic is going to be on Netflix's ability to continue to grow its subscribers. The other issue of what you just said is that they're spending less on on content. Um, they're spending a ton on content. They're going to spend 17 billion on original content this year. They're going to say they're going to spend, say, analysts 26 billion on content by 2028. And the fact is they have to spend yep. more on original content than some of the competitors like Disney because they don't have the kinds of catalogs that Disney or Viacom or Comcast, our parent company, have through NBC Universal. Isn't that an issue as well? In, in, with respect to the amount that they're spending on content, what I'm talking about is the difference between, remember they had this transition from licensing content to producing original content. And so that is a better situation for them. So when I say they're spending less, not I'm not talking about their overall spend. I'm saying that it costs them less to produce original content than it does to license the content. And so for them, um, that's definitely a good thing. Uh, and, you're, and to kind of get back to your to your uh, your, your first point, yeah. I, I, if in our conversation yesterday, I wasn't expecting this big of a miss. 
But, you know, all in all, I'm okay with it because I really do see the long-term picture. I'm not looking, I'm not judging Netflix like, solely by this quarter um, and, and their misses because it really is hard to predict, to forecast. I understood. Look, you're, you're, you're backing it up with your, with your dollar. Um, because you bought more into the number and you bought more today on, on the drop. So that says more, more than anything. Tiffany, I appreciate you calling in. We'll see you back on the desk soon. That's Tiffany McGee, Pivotal Advisors. Joe, so you, got, you have Netflix in the Joe T ETF. What are we supposed to think about I this do. now? Exactly what you uh, highlighted in your question to Tiffany. Scott, let me ask you something. You've got a bunch of companies that offered a digital product or service in 2020 how are these companies ever going to be able to comp in 2021 against the numbers that they were posting in 2020? In Q1 of 2020, Netflix had 15.8 million new subscribers. So the expectation was they were going to have 6 million in this quarter. They missed badly. The guidance looking forward is for another quarter where they're going to miss again. Here's the question. Can they recover from that? And here's where Netflix, to Tiffany's point, has some support. They're finally fixing the balance sheet. They're free cash flow positive. They're buying back their stocks. You're correct. They're going to send, spend $17 billion on new content. And they need to focus specifically on international growth in that new content. And they're going to spend even more next year. So over the course of time, Netflix is going to be able to recover. Of course. But I think the real well, question is how many, but how many of these companies, Scott, that pulled forward all the expected revenue growth in 2020 and now have to comp against those critical numbers? Okay. Do they have balance sheets like Netflix does in which they recover? Okay. The answer to that is no. I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you went there because that's sort of where I wanted to go next. But let's just point out one more thing on, on Netflix. Um, churn was low. Kramer also thinks this is an opportunity. The company's betting a lot on the second half of this year. So, you know, yeah. that needs to be mentioned as well. But to your point on the pull forward, Michael Batnick, who's a good follow on Twitter, um, by the way, was also suggesting today that Netflix can't be the only one with a, a massive pull forward, right? So right. is that now going to be an issue? Amy, when we hear from, from other companies, the Zooms and the, the Pelotons and whoever else you want to lump into that group of the stocks that just thrived incredibly over the last year with the stay at home, who pulled forward so much of their business that the next couple of quarters may look a little lumpy. Do we need to rethink now based on what Netflix just said? Yes, it's going to be a huge issue. Um, we've been expecting this to be an issue for a lot of the beneficiaries last year of the stay-at-home trade. Um, everybody who benefited is going to have a very tough comp. Um, and we're going to see that going into 2022, that a lot of the companies that are going to benefit now from some pent-up demand are going to have a tough comp next year. So um, the pandemic caused havoc in a lot of our numbers and forecasting, and it's going to be it's going to be a choppy, challenging environment. And if, but especially for the companies, as, as Jenny said, they're priced to delusion. I'm not going to comment really on Netflix because we don't own it. Um, but there are a lot of companies out there that um, are going to disappoint. Next week, Pete, um, you better not get disappointments from 
Microsoft and Alphabet on Tuesday or Apple and Facebook on Wednesday or Amazon on Thursday, given what we've gotten from Netflix now and the fact that the stocks, like I mentioned at the top of the program, are either flat or negative. Um, I'm talking, of course, about yeah. Amazon, Apple, and now Netflix, Facebook and Alphabet have been setting you know, new records, it seems like, um, almost every week. And of course, the street is now out with notes ahead of, of earnings. Katie Huberty, who dropped her price target a couple of weeks ago, she raises it back by a buck to mm -hmm. 158. But Goldman, Pete, today reiterates their sell and their price target. I mean, it's incredible when you look at the price target that they have just relative to not only where everybody else is, but where the street and where investors are overwhelmingly in their own minds. $83 yeah. is the Goldman price target. That represents a 37% downside. You've got positive notes on Microsoft, positive notes on Amazon. But I can't get past this Goldman $83 price target, Pete. Well, and they've been there for a long time, Scott, and they've been wrong for a long time. And I, and I think it's always good to point out who's been right and who's been wrong. Who do you want to follow? Who's, you know, and that's why for I don't know how many years you've gotten tired of me saying, hey, look, I listened to Katie Huberty. You had just mentioned Katie Huberty. What she was looking at was not just the phone and not just this and not just that. She went directly to services. That's where the margins are. That's where they continue to grow. Wearables, the same story. And she's talking about how they're seeing iPad uh, sales as well. And, and that sort of category where we didn't have that in the past. Maybe they've pulled forward a little bit there, but I think going forward for for, for, for a long period of time now, I think we're going to see that folks are going to go more and more and more, especially in the hybrid society. They're going to need to upgrade. They're going to need more memory. They're going to need more speed. And all of that, I think, bodes well for companies like Apple, for Microsoft, and some of these others that are in that you know, world of competition. I think on the Apple side, you've got to listen to Katie because she's been far more right than just about any other analyst out there. And she was, has been talking about and pounding the table about some of the different growth aspects that she sees going forward. And if she's right on some of the growth that she's projecting going into this next quarter, talking about an 80 billion quarter, and she's also talking about adding to and, and buybacks, the 60 billion in buybacks, putting the dividend yield that much higher, maybe jumping it by 10%. There's a lot of different categories that I think make Apple really, really interesting going forward. Mm -hmm. And I understand what you're saying about the, the Goldman Sachs. I, I don't understand how long they've been wrong and how long they want to wait on this particular call on Apple because they have not been close for a long period of time, Scott. This is this has been a stock that's been trading plus 120, you know, plus 125 for this year, even though they haven't really produced much. And like you said, unchanged essentially for the year. Yeah. But still, that's $40 away, right? I hear you. Look, I mean, I'd, I would have a counter. Yeah. I would ha try to come up with some counter for you um, as I try <laughs> and do. Uh, I don't have one, though. <laughs> I mean, the numbers don't lie, and, and that's just a fact. However, the weakness in the NASDAQ, Pete, is one of the reasons and one of the warning signs uh, that Jonathan Krinsky is watching closely. He, the chief market technician at Baycrest Partners, uh, back with us and a frequent guest. So you say it's good to see you, by the way. Thank you for coming on today. You say the breakdown in, in the NASDAQ internals is either a warning for the broad market or an opportunity for those names to catch up to the uh, indices, which which you think it is. Because that, that matters. It does. I, I think um, we think it's a bit of a warning. Um, and part of the reason, so just, just to kind of 
uh, flesh it out a little bit. Yeah, the NASDAQ composite, which is, has about 3,000 securities, um, was near a 52-week high. It's above its 50-day moving average. But over the last few weeks, we've seen deterioration in breadth, and we now only have about 30% of the index above their 50-day moving average. Um, and a lot of that weakness is coming from the more speculative areas of the market, the SPACs, some recent IPOs, uh, some of the China tech names, clean tech, you know, the, the electric vehicle names, all this stuff that was kind of um, viewed as a bit frothy and parabolic in the early part of the year, that's come down and it hasn't been able to bounce back with the NASDAQ. So that's really where you're seeing the deterioration. Um, and when we look back historically, when you see these type of divergences in the NASDAQ, there's been a couple times, notably November 07 and October of 18, where this divergence obviously did lead to a meaningful bigger pullback in the market. Um, and the other times actually was was what you said. It was more just a time for those lagging stocks to kind of catch their breath um, and play catch up to the index. But on almost every occasion, even if it was within a strong cyclical bull market, you saw some weakness over the ensuing couple of weeks. Um, so I think that's consistent with what we've seen the year-to-date pattern so far this year, which is you've seen very strong gains in the first half of the month, and then you've given back, you've rechased some of that in the back half of the month. We were up over 5% by the midpoint of April. Um, and I think a lot of good news has been priced in. You're coming into earnings season. You saw what happened with Netflix. So I think there's just going to be um, a little bit of a choppy choppy pullback here. And you know, we think the S&P could actually probably pull back to 39.50, which sounds like a big pullback, um, but it's really just you know kind of retest that trend line and, and shakes out some of the um, some of the new longs here. And then, and then you think we we would reload and and then have another go at it. Yeah, I think so. Some of the other things you've been talking about over the last couple of weeks is that um, we actually, while the Nasdaq breadth is very weak um, on a short-term basis, you have long-term breadth. Like 95% of the S&P is above the 200-day moving average, so that kind of speaks to the long-term strength. So it's kind of there's a little divergence where you're getting short-term weakness within a long-term um, uptrend. So I think yeah, I think if you get back to 39.54,000, that would be a good good point to reload. Um, I just think right here the the risk reward is not very good. Yeah, interesting. Uh, appreciate your time as always, Jonathan. Thank you. That's Jonathan Krinsky with the call there, Joe. I'm wondering what you think of that, and also you know in in looking for areas of froth in the market. You know, some are clearly looking at crypto. Like, again, I mentioned Scott Minard at the top of the show who was on the network this morning. He's looking for a major correction in the near term. He calls Bitcoin, for example, quote, very frothy. He's looking to a pullback, and this is a significant one, 20,000 to 30,000, 50% decline in Bitcoin. I wonder what the broader stock market would do if that happens. He is bullish over the longer term. I bring this all up because before I go, I want to talk about Coinbase, which you bought. We mentioned that, right? Your order was filled at 325. You sold yesterday at 315. That's it? That was quick. Yeah. Now, it, it, it was quick, but I told you the other day I was uncomfortable with it and I was going to be very impatient. Scott, basically, uh, Coinbase spent 90 minutes trading above 350 on the first day that it's opened. In the six subsequent days, it has not developed any positive price momentum. I still think fundamentally the company in the long term is going to uh, have the ability to grow its earnings and and see a higher share price. But in the near term, I didn't want to accept the risk that there could be a further deterioration as this company tries to find what the right pricing coming off this IPO is. I didn't want to take that exposure in this environment, so I'm going to move to the sidelines. I'll take another look at it at some point. Okay. We are going to take a break. I do, though, before we do that, 
I uh, want to show you UiPath. It is an IPO today. It's one of the biggest software IPOs ever, and it has just begun uh, its trade. It's up uh, just shy. Oh, there it is. I was going to say just shy of 17%. And right before I did that, of course, it burst above a 17% gain. 65, pushing 66 bucks. We're going to talk more about that coming up, and uh, we will debate um, software stocks as well. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one, which means we do the little things right so that we can keep our promises and you can keep yours too. That's what drives us. To learn how OD can help your business keep its promises, visit odfl.com. Old Dominion, helping the world keep promises. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. President Biden wants businesses to give their employees paid time off to get vaccinated and for recovery time if needed. He's announcing a new tax credit to pay for it. That'll be offered to small companies and nonprofits with fewer than 500 employees. A dozen governors are urging the White House to set a path to eliminate greenhouse gas emissions from cars and trucks by 2035 for most vehicles and then 2045 for larger trucks. In Afghanistan, U.S.-backed peace talks have been postponed. Taliban leaders have dismissed the conference, and no new date has been set. And winter apparently not letting go. Buffalo, New York was covered in snow by the time rush hour was over this morning. Up to five inches is expected, blowing away the previous record for April 21st, which was just over one inch. So, Scott, apparently it's rare, but clearly still possible. I'll send it back to you. Yeah, I don't even want to see those pictures. Just get them out of here. Nah, not, no energy here. like that over here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All right, Rahel, thank you. Shares of UiPath, as I said before the break, are trading now. It's one of the biggest software IPOs ever. Our Leslie Picker following the money on this IPO, as she does for all of them. So what do, how are we supposed to think about this one? Yeah, so I would say this one is a perfect reflection of what's been going on with its peers in the publicly traded marketplace. You look at a lot of the, the recent activity uh, among software stocks recently, and we have a great chart that can show you some of uh, the bigger names off of their recent highs. Uh, you can see a major revision in how investors are valuing software right now. UiPath, their decision to go public right now uh, is a perfect reflection of that. So you can see Snowflake off 46%, Zoom Video off 45%, Qualtrics 39%. Uh, and so the way that these IPOs are valued is they basically take uh, companies that are similar, whether it's business model or customer base or so forth, and they pull together all of those inputs. They say, this is how uh, we should value a company, a new issue like UiPath in the public markets. Well, when you have those peers, those comparables in the publicly traded markets that are down significantly like they are here, you have to take a step down in the valuation for these IPOs. Maybe uh, more than they would have wanted. For example, UiPath right here is at 65.48. Uh, that is just about in line with where they raised money back in February at a $35 billion valuation. Uh, their IPO pricing, however, on uh, during their roadshow, they were actually looking to price uh, significantly below that round and then raise the price range and then priced above that price range, but still below their latest round from February, which is just the perfect uh, microcosm of what we're seeing in the software 
software industry as a whole right now in the publicly traded markets. Uh, there is a lot of talk, too, about the private down round, mm-hmm. right? When, when sort of looking at that company and then gauging what the IPO was going to look like. Do you know off the top of your head, and forgive me for, for just throwing this at you if you mm-hmm. don't, um, like what kind of price to sales we're talking about with a, with a company yeah. like this, only because it was such in focus with a snowflake, for example, which was, you know, in the in the stratosphere. In the 70s. Yeah. Yeah. When Snowflake went public, I think it was about 70 times. Uh, this one's about 52 times annual revenue uh, at the IPO price. So trading a bit above that not right now, maybe about 53 times. Um, so significantly higher than most software stocks that you think of still below that of software, but higher than almost all cloud stocks uh, that we've been tracking. So it's certainly not cheap on a price to sales metric by any means. Um, but, you know, from a psychological standpoint, if you're an investor and you say, okay, well, it's still coming below its latest private round. So, you know, maybe we are getting a bit of a deal here. Another important kind of technical factor for this one, um, they're only floating about four and a half percent of the stock. Oftentimes when you see that, you do get quite a bit of pop because of the various supply and demand dynamic. Now, this is a billion dollar plus IPO. So there is that. Um, but, you know, 17 percent, we're not used to seeing 17 percent pops for software IPOs uh, within the last year or so, especially some of the bigger ones that were heavily anticipated, such as this one. Now, I think people who look at the IPO process would say 17 percent pop is perfect because that means they didn't leave as much money on the table. Uh, but just kind of noteworthy for, um, you know, especially as we look at what's gone on with IPOs in the software space over the last few years or so. Yeah, you can't win either way. <laughs> you can't. Right? All right, Leslie, I appreciate it. Thank you. That's Leslie Picker. Joe, I don't think I have any takers on this one uh, on the desk, even though, as we said, it's one of the biggest software IPOs ever, right? Nobody's raising their hand saying, I'm buying this thing, right? I know Pete's not from what he said about these other high-flying names. Joe, no? <laughs> nope. No, I'm not going to buy this one. Uh, I'm going to take a look at it. I'm also, you know, I've been watching Snowflake. I think what you want to do is, let there be several quarters where you get to understand not only what the earnings are going to look like, but also how management communicates with investors. I think that's critically important. That's been what I've done in the last couple of years as it relates to IPOs. I think that's more of the prudent strategy. All right. Up next, our call of the day. It's on a financial stock. It's doubled over the last year. We'll see how much more room is ahead. Plus, as you know by now, April is Financial Literacy Month. We here at CNBC are committed to sharing messages from business leaders about the importance of financial education. Here is Dallas Mavericks owner, Mark Cuban. The best financial advice I ever got, number one, don't use credit cards. Number two, spend less than you make. Number three, invest in understanding finance. If you don't understand finance, it's awful hard to know what you're doing. Good luck, everybody. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash report.
That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. That's right, our call of the day. Morgan Stanley upgraded at Berenberg to buy. Price target goes to 91 bucks. They say it has more room to run. It's about $79 right now. Joe, you own Morgan Stanley. Is it going to get to 91 bucks or beyond? Oh, it, I sure do own Morgan Stanley. What took them so long to finally come around to it? They've had a hold on this stock since 2017. The average 12-month price target is $91. Yes, I think it's going to get there. It's going to get there on the strength of capital markets and global wealth management and clearly the integration as it relates to E-Trade. So I like that they're finally coming around. I wish they'd do the same with Goldman Sachs. They have a hold on Goldman Sachs. I don't understand that. Yeah, speaking of Goldman, Amy, you own Goldman and, and J.P. Morgan. Yep. Yeah, we have been underweight financials for a long time, closed that towards the end of last year a little bit, um, still a little lit under market weight. Uh, but this is financials time to shine. If they don't work now um, with yields rising, um, I don't see what makes them work. There's still overcapacity in the industry in general. Um, lack of demand for loan growth is, is a problem, but... Um, they're cheap, relatively to certainly relative to the market, and even absolutely. And um, this is this is their day. This is what we've been waiting for for financials. All right, Rahel's back with us. She has some more calls that we need to talk about and trade as well. Rahel, hi again, Scott. Yeah, so let's start with Pepsi getting upgraded to buy at UBS. Target bumps up twenty bucks to one sixty-five a share. Analysts here, Scott, expect further revenue and earnings growth from investments already underway. Also thinks that compared to its peers, Pepsi's valuation is compelling. You can see shares are up uh, less than half a percent right now. Deutsche Bank is naming United Airlines a catalyst by idea. Shares are down about 15 percent in the last two weeks. And the firm thinks that's a bit extreme and sees recovery and travel demand also continuing. And then Citi is opening a positive catalyst watch on both AbbVie and Bristol-Myers. Analysts say that both stocks have been held back because of concerns related to one of Pfizer's drugs, which could then lead to more labeling restrictions on related products. But Citi thinks that both AbbVie and BMY will be able to escape those labels. Analysts also like that both companies, their acquisitions with Allergan's commercial focus helping AbbVie and then Bristol-Myers pipeline getting a boost from its Celgene acquisition. You can see Bristol-Myers up about half, half a percent right now. Scott, I'll send it back okay. to you. Uh, thank you very much, Rahel. Uh, Pete. Let's talk Pepsi first, yeah. right? You also own Coca-Cola, sure. but for the purposes of this upgrade, upgraded to buy UBS 165 yeah. from 145. You buy it? It does. It makes sense to me. Yeah, Scott. I mean, when I look at this name, they have grown so well into where they are that they trade virtually at the same PE level that they've traded at in the past. So they continue to grow. They continue to grow in many, many categories. So, yes, I think there's plenty of upside, and I think that 165, that might even be a little bit light in terms of uh, – depending on what their time frame is for that. But yeah, and I know everybody's got a little bit of a different one, but I think there's plenty of room here still to the upside for Pepsi and for Coke. Jenny, Abvi, Bristol-Myers, both are in your book, uh, and they are both po positive catalyst watches over at Citi. Right, so this has to do with a study that's going on at Pfizer that, um, that had some potential FDA concerns coming up on it. It sounds, according to Citi, like as of next week, those concerns will be removed, which would be a boost to potential future revenues for both AbbVie and Bristol-Myers, even though it's different drugs at both companies. So we own both of them and are happy to see the clouds lifted ahead. Think that there's plenty of room for upside. Okay. Well, there you go. Both stocks in the green today. Pete has unusual activity coming up next. We'll be right back.
Unusual activity, Pete. What do you have for us today? Yeah, I'm going to start off with one everybody knows. You mentioned it earlier as well, Facebook. Now, Facebook was under a little bit of pressure today. Stock was trading right around $300, Scott. And we had a buyer of the April 30, so not this Friday, but the following Friday, expiring options of the 305 strike calls. And they bought 9,000 of these, Scott. Now, there's a fair amount of premium there as well. But there's also a little bit of time for these to work. They were paying anywhere between $730 all the way up through $8 for these options that will expire, as I say, in a week and a half. That does include earnings, which is on the 28th. Next, I've got for you FXI, which is the China large cap ETF. Now, this is one that, if you look year to date, started off the year around 46 and a half. It's about where we are right now. It did get up towards 54 in February, but it's pulled right back down to that level again, like I mentioned, at 46. So a big buyer of July 49 calls, about 7,000 of those getting bought there for about 80 cents. Now, last week or a couple of weeks ago, they were buying the June 49s. Now they're buying the July 49s and hedging those off as well. So somebody out there expecting some sort of recovery in the FXI in the next couple of months. Right. Good stuff, Pete. Appreciate that. Thank you. Ask Halftime's coming Thanks. up next. You can send your questions by video. We'll play them on the air. You can email us. Ask Halftime at CNBC.com. We're back right after this break. All righty. We're answering your questions now. First up, Joey, I have a video question for you. Hi, my name is Mark Marshall from Sarasota, Florida. My question is carparts.com. After doubling in price recently and having two good quarters, the stock is now floundering around 14. I was wondering, is that a victim of the reopening trade or just temporary? Thank you. Thank you for the question. Joe, what's the answer? Mark, that's a great question. Yes, it is a victim of the reopening trade. This is a pure play e-commerce auto parts story. They next report earnings on May 10th. If you're long the stock, I want you to put a stop in below the 200-day moving average, which sits at 13.93. Let's wait to hear what's going to occur on earnings. And what's really cool about this company, Scott, is they do earnings calls in the traditional sense, and then an hour later, they jump on Clubhouse to talk to the retail investing community. Oh, okay, that is cool. Thank you uh, for that, Joe. Thanks for the question uh, as well, Mark, down in Sarasota. Pete, a video question for you now. Yeah. Hi, this is Carlos Manzano for New York City. Thank you for your great show. I would like to ask about Palantir and Space. I think they have potential for the future, and I would like to hear your perspective. Thank you. Pete, you own Virgin Galactic shares, so what do you think? Yep. I think there's potential for the future as well. The, the problem lately has been that Sir Richard Branson's been selling some of his stock. ARK Investments been selling some of their stock. There's a little bit of pressure on the company right now. They do bleed some cash, but they got a great balance sheet, Scott. So I continue to own this stock. I sell options against it. I have since I started owning the stock. I get a lot of premium there, and it gives me a little bit of comfort, at least some downside protection by getting the kind of premiums I am for selling upside calls. But I like the company, and I still think there's plenty of upside. Okay. Uh, Amy, to you uh, from Janice. She says, I hold Chevron, which is 17% of my portfolio. Well, that's a big number. Have $46 a share cost, hold, buy, or sell. What do you think? Um, well, at 17% of the portfolio, I would trim. Congratulations on a great purchase at $46. You've more than doubled your money. Um, I think 17% is a big part of any portfolio, probably too big. So I would diversify a little bit. But in general, we like the energy sector. There's been years of underinvestment. We still think the stocks are attractive. We could have a 
major summer driving season. So I like the fundamentals for Chevron, but you've made a lot of money and it's probably too big a percentage of the portfolio at this point. Okay, Jenny, lastly to you from Art in Vancouver. Hi, Jenny, saw your medical properties trust pick recently. Thoughts on that one versus Physicians Realty, DOC. What do you think? Frequently when I research a new investment for the portfolio, I don't look at just one company. I look at that company and its peers. So in this case, I was actually actively researching medical properties as well as physicians realty. And it was interesting because they're both fantastic stories. Medical property owns hospitals, physicians realty owns medical office buildings. They're both really good businesses, really stable cash flows, great stories. And this is where we get back to what I said earlier in the show, where the story needs to work in concert with the valuation. So here's where they diverge. With medical properties trust, you've got something that trades at 14 times, 5% dividend yield, 6% earnings, no, sorry, 8% earnings growth, 3.5% dividend growth. With Physicians Realty, you've got 0% dividend growth, 4.7 times, 4.7% um, earnings 18 times. So you actually have two great stories, but one that also has a great valuation, and that's medical properties. So I would go with that over Physicians Realty all day long. Okay, story has to match the valuation. I like that. We're going to talk about that a lot. Jenny, thank you. All right, final trades are next. Got a question for the Halftime Investment Committee? If you want to send us a video, we could play it on air. Email us, askhalftime at cnbc.com. Final trades in just a moment. But Pete, you do have a new buy, and it is Toro. Tell us, TTC. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, I love this name, Scott. They do a great job. They have incredible growth right now in their earnings, and it continues to accelerate to the upside. And when you take a look at their balance sheet, it looks phenomenal as well with their free cash flow. So the combination of that and throw in there that the pros, as far as the sales go, the pros, that's going to be up about 9%. You take a look at the, the residential, that's up about 30-plus percent. There's nothing but growth going on here. They've built themselves an incredible business, and that just continues. So I love this name right now. That's my most recent buy. I have to talk to Farmer Jim to see if he agrees with this one for obvious reasons. We'll see. And he does a big tractor supply guy. Yeah. So, But he drives like a Japanese tractor. I never even heard of it, not even a Toro or Deer or anything like that. But that's another story for another day. Pete, thank you. Uh, Amy, do you have a final trade? Yes. Sure. ASML, company reported this morning, 80% revenue growth. This is the big winner with the semi-cap um, increases in CapEx. Okay. Jenny? Viacom, nine times earnings with a 2.5% yield. Great content library that's already produced and paid for. Okay. Joe, quick, and then Pete with a quick name. IHI, medical devices, ETF, all-time high. Pete, quick. I'm going to give you the first solar. All right. Appreciate it. Thank you. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.